Well, it's so good to worship the Lord, and uh, especially to be able to worship the Lord and have Nick and Holly and their daughter Chloe helping us and leading us in music this morning. They haven't been with us the last two weeks, as you know, and there was uh, the sickness in their family, a very clear possibility that Holly uh, was exposed to the coronavirus. And in fact, just came back confirmed. Uh, I learned uh, yesterday that that p- test came back positive, and, but they're doing better, and they're all past it, and, and so the Lord's been gracious to them. So uh, we're excited and, and pleased that they're back and have led us in worship this morning. And so uh, I want to invite you, to, if you will, to take your Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. It is a beautiful morning outside, and it's so wonderful. Uh, this time of year, I mean, you think about it, you, you drive down the road and, and and you look at the trees and the hills and all that, and it seems like one week there's not a leaf on the tree. You come back the same road the next week, and, and all the leaves have just blown up. The, the flowers have all blossomed, and you went literally from death to life almost overnight. And that's kind of where we're at. That's the season that we're in. It's springtime. Everything's springing in to life. Thinking about that, uh, seasons come and seasons go. Seasons have their change. In fact, everything in life has its season. There is a beginning and there is an end. I'm reminded of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Listen to what Solomon says. He says, for everything there is a season. There's a time for every matter under heaven, time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. And I like this one. I think this is very applicable to us today. Solomon says there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. That's kind of where we're at today. Verse 6 says, a time to seek and a time to lose. It's a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate. He says there's a time for war and a time for peace. Solomon here reminds us that in everything, there is an inauguration and a conclusion. There is a beginning and an end, an opening and a closing. This is also true of mankind and life on earth as we know it. If we go back all the way to the very beginning in the book of Genesis, we learn there that life began in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were created and they lived in perfect harmony with God, perfect harmony with creation, perfect harmony with one another. Sin soon destroyed everything that there was. Judgment was then pronounced against sin as well as against the sinner, even as mercy and grace are extended to those who would turn from their sin. And then a beautiful word is spoken in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God spoke and he declared that there would one day be in the future one who would come, one who would come and put an end to the tempter as well as his temptation. God continued as the progressive canon of Scripture is unfolded. He continues to declare through his prophets of this one who was to come. He also spoke through them of how this one would put an end to sin. How this one would remake all that has been broken, all that's been lost in this world as a result of sin. 
Fast forward a few millennia, millennia, and we learn that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the one who's been spoken of. He's the one the prophets have pointed toward. He came to satisfy the just wrath of God against sin. He offered his life as a ransom for sinners in order for them to be forgiven, in order for them to be redeemed back to God the Father. He is also the one who will finally and fully defeat Satan. He will fully defeat the demonic kingdom, and he will remake and he will return the world back to what it was in the beginning. Jesus is that one. Thus far in our study of the book of Revelation, we've been working through the seven seals. We have seen here that God is unfolding history. He's bringing things to an end. And we've seen that these seven seals that we've been working through lead to the key theme of Revelation, that being the opening of the scroll. Maybe we call it the scroll of destiny. This scroll contains the divine plan for ending the present world order under the power of sin. We've seen that they are preliminary judgments on the earth that prepare for the trumpets and the bowls to come. They represent forces operative throughout the history uh, of man by means of the redemptive as well as the judicial purposes of God. These seven seals take place prior to the, the breaking in of the eschaton or the end time. These things are taking place throughout history. And so these first six seals have been broken on the scroll of destiny. We've worked through that thus far. Now it is time for the seventh seal, the final seal, to be opened. It's time for the beginning of the end. So I'm going to invite you, look with me in Revelation chapter 8, and let's read this chapter and see what God has to say about the beginning of the end. John says in Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of all the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Verse 6, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and the third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The angel, the fourth angel, I should say, blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third 
of the night. Then I looked, verse 13 says, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. We see here in this chapter that the beginning of the end has begun. The seven trumpets that were introduced to share some similarities with the seven seals. They both contain what we might call a four plus two plus one formula. That is, the first four seals, as well as the trumpets, are closely connected to the to one another, and then the following two judgments are also closely connected to one another. Then, after those six, there's an extensive interlude between the sixth and the seventh judgment, or the sixth and seventh seal and the sixth and seventh trumpet. And so, then we see in this that the seventh in both series contains no judgment, but instead it leads into the next aspect of God's activity and judgment. Therefore, these seven trumpets constitute the contents of the seventh seal, just as the seven bowls of wrath that we find in Revelation chapter 15 and 16 constitute the contents of the seventh trumpet. In this, we do see a partial recapitulation of the other. In other words, there are similarities between these two series, but there also are stark differences between them. According to Robert Mounts, all three series, the seals, the trumpets, as well as the bowls, cover the same period of travail in which the history of man is being brought to consummation. Yet the individual plagues in each series are not intended to directly correspond with those in the other two. Along with this, chronology is not that important. Now, that's hard for us to understand. As Americans, as Westerns, we, in our mindset, want to press the material into very well-defined literary patterns. But John's presentation here, all throughout the Revelation, specifically right here, is given to us abstractly. It's not given to us necessarily in a systematic system or systematic approach. The point is not to give readers a clear and concise chronology and order of events. Instead, John's purpose is to show the increasing severity in each series of judgments. So we are to understand the relationship between these three series, series as a spiral of increasing severity in God's judgment against evil and not attempt to press them into a clearly defined plan. That's not John's purpose at all. John wants us to see the severity of what's going on and be drawn to repentance, drawn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, moved even as a believer to be engaged in the Gospels, to awaken us to the severity of God's judgment and desire to not be there and definitely make sure that no one else is there as well experiencing that judgment. So as the Lamb of God, as we move back to the text, Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we see the Lamb of God opening this seventh seal. And as the Lamb of God does so, notice what happens next. Look, what what does John say? He says, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. In other words, there's this holy hush that overcomes all of heaven. 
This dramatic pause is set against the noise in heaven that John has witnessed up until this point. What we've seen over the first seven chapters is a lot of noise, a lot of song, a lot of praise, a lot of declarations. I mean, in chapter 4, verse 5, there are rumblings and peals of thunder. The four living creatures are are, are speaking mightily. The angels before the throne are speaking mightily. There's a voice like thunder calling forth the angels with the breaking of the first four seals. Heaven is erupted in worship and praise, song and sound. But now as the seventh seal is being broken and the beginning of the end is commencing, heaven is silent. Heaven is silent at this moment. And so when we read this, it it just kind of slaps us in the face. It's so different from anything that we've seen so far. What are we to make of the silence that was all throughout heaven? Well, George Eldon Ladd suggests this. He suggests that the silence represents an attitude of trembling suspense on the part of the heavenly host in view of the judgments of God. God, which are about to fall upon the world. In other words, what's happening here is there is this dreadful anticipation of God's wrath that's about to be poured out. Verse 2, right after the 30 minutes of silence, John sees seven angels who stand before God. And these seven angels are given seven trumpets. Another angel immediately comes to the altar with a golden censer, and he was given incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. And so this angel with his censer takes incense, and he offers it up to the Lord. It joins in with the prayers of the saints of God, and it becomes a fragrant offering to the holiness and to the glory of Almighty God. These prayers most likely contain petitions for the coming of God's kingdom and God's judgment against the demonic powers and his kingdom. Those who oppress the followers of Jesus. These are imprecatory prayers. These are prayers of cursing against those who have oppressed the people of God. After offering the incense, the angel puts his censer back to the altar. He takes some hot coals in that censer and he hurls those hot coals down upon the earth. These coals signify the judgment of God upon the earth that is to follow in the seven trumpets. Trumpets are found all throughout the scriptures. They play a key role in the nation of Israel. They play a key role in the life of Jesus, especially the return of Jesus and the eschatological uh, ramifications therein. According to Numbers chapter 10, trumpets were used for three reasons in the nation of Israel. Number one, they called people together. They assembled the people of God in the nation of Israel. Number two, they announced war. Trumpets were blown when Israel went out to battle. And then number three, they announced special times. Trumpets were blown on special feasts and special holidays and special festivities. This is exactly what the trumpets are doing here. They're announcing the assembling of God's people. They're announcing the the war that's about to take place, and they're announcing a special time, a special moment in the history of the world. And so the first trump is sounded here in verse 7. This plague that is uh, broke out or or breaks out against the, the, the world and the sinful people in the world is similar to the seventh plague that we find there in Exodus that came against the nation of Egypt in Exodus chapter 9. 
The Bible tells us it destroys a third of the earth by burning its foliage and its green vegetation. Think about, think about what's happening here. As this, seventh, or this first trumpet is, is blown and a third of the foliage is burned up, the balance of nature is greatly affected. The food supply chain is greatly affected. You think about what that would have done or will do, I should say, in the days to come when this judgment comes. And then on its heels, a second trumpet. It is sounded, and the Bible tells us that something like a burning mountain is thrown into the sea. It is similar to the first Egyptian plague there in Exodus chapter 7. And here we find a third of the oceans are turned into blood, killing a third of the sea life and destroying a third of the ships. This would have been, this will be, I should say, an ecological and an economic disaster of unprecedented proportions. Think about how much commerce and how much business is done on the oceans as things are carried back and forth from country to country. And when those ships are destroyed, a third of them taken out, what that's going to do economically, but what it's also going to do ecologically in the oceans themselves. The third trumpet is sounded. The Bible tells us a great star falls from heaven and torches the fresh water supply of the earth. It doesn't, this, this particular judgment, this particular plague, does not correlate to the ten plagues there in Egypt, but interestingly, it does have similarities to what took place in Exodus chapter 15 when Israel was there in Marah and found that the waters were bitter. But here, it's the reverse of that. It's the antithesis of that story. There Moses took a log and he cast it into the water as God told him and the waters became sweet and able to be drank. Here what we see is the water because of the judgment of God becomes bitterly polluted and the drinking as well as the use of this water produces death. This is a water contamination like the world has never known. This brings us to the fourth trumpet as it is sounded, the entire world is now going to be affected. Where it's only been a third of the world affected, now the entire world's going to be affected as the sun, the moon, and the stars are struck and the light and the energy they produced is reduced by a third. This judgment parallels the ninth plague there in Egypt as darkness covered the land of Egypt for three days. This judgment through this fourth trumpet is going to affect the climate. The temperatures are going to be greatly affected, which will impact the climate, which will also impact food production and everything in life. The first series of trumpets, as well as their plagues, are now complete. The forces of nature have fallen under divine judgment as a warning to sinful men and women. Now comes an alarm. Here's what we see interesting in this text is John shares with us the first four trumpets and the judgments that they bring, and then there's going to be a, a call for, the Bible calls it a woe. There's going to be this warning three different times saying these have been really, really bad, but the three that are about to come are going to be even worse and even more pervasive, more personal. And so verse 13 is an alarm that's issued, and this alarm comes from the sky, speaking of these greater judgments that are to follow. As this eagle flies above everyone, and everyone is able to see it, he cries out, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. 
These final trumpets with, will be devastating, the eagle says, for those who remain or those who dwell, I should say, on the earth. They will be brought directly upon man. This expression, dwell upon the earth, is repeated throughout the Revelation. And it's not speaking about people who are alive on the earth. It's speaking specifically for those who are sinful, those who are rebellious, those who are apostate and, and, and haters of God. The judgments are going to come upon them. It speaks of the pagan world living in rebellion against God. It's those in Revelation chapter 6, verse 6, 17, who are shaking their fists at God even as they experience the judgment of God on their bodies. So we see here, again, that divine wrath comes upon the rebellious. It comes upon the evil. But the church is sealed by God, according to Revelation chapter 7, sealed by God, protected by God, spared from the suffering of these plagues, much like Israel was spared during the plagues of Egypt. And so with all of that said, what does this mean for us today? What does this speak, or how does this speak into our lives, and how do we bring application for us and what we do, how we live today, even as we keep an eye on eternity? I want to share with you three realities and three applications that go along with them that, that I believe we need to understand, that I believe we need to employ in our lives so that we live with hearts that are hot for God, with hearts that are hot and, and passionate for sharing the gospel with others. And so let me share these three with you this morning. Number one, there is a holy expectancy in heaven for God's justice to be served. This holy hush that we see in verse one speaks of this expectancy there in heaven for God's justice to be served on earth. See, there we find that the creatures of heaven they know and love the holiness of God. The angels are worshiping God. They're serving God. They love God. They enjoy his holiness. They enjoy his goodness. They fully understand that life and joy are found only in God, only in relationship with him. They also recognize that God is worthy of all worship, worthy of all allegiance. Therefore, any break from complete surrender, any break from complete worship given over to God, given to God, demands divine judgment. Let me explain what I mean by this. I'm not much of an artist, and if you've spent any time with me at all or seen me draw, you know that I'm not an artist. But in junior high, I remember having to take an art class, and in that art class, we had to make a lot of things, and one of those was a clay pot. We had to do some things with clay. And so we learned how to work with clay. We learned how to take a, a lump of clay and fashion it into a pot. Now, I will admit that my mom probably doesn't have that clay pot because it wasn't worth keeping. It didn't look very well, but I tried. I did my best. And so the Bible speaks about clay quite a bit. It speaks about clay and, and it being worked into something usable. It uses this image often to relate to God and his authority as well as his work in the lives of people. Isaiah 64, Jeremiah 18, Romans chapter 9 are, are passages that use this as an illustration to speak of God's activity in our lives. And so the Bible relates to us as humans as the clay. It refers to God as the potter. There on the potter's wheel, think about this, the clay never raises its head in rebellion to the potter. It never rebels or fights against the wishes or the directions of the potter. It simply surrenders. It simply yields to the wishes and the sculpting of the potter. 
It understands that the potter is in control. It understands that the potter knows best. And so there is trust. There's even a sense of excitement of the outcome that is to come. Today, we know from what the Bible teaches us is that sin has broken all trust, all allegiance, all surrender, and the worship in man. Brokenness compels the clay now, you and I, to rise up against the potter, to seek to replace him. This rebellion demands the wrath and the justice of holy God. The angels, going back to the passage here, know this and understand this. In fact, they're in awe of what is about to be unleashed on the rebellion of man. The application for us is this. In the justice of God, we are reminded that true life is found only in him. Today, as we read about these judgments that are to come, why are these judgments coming? It's because people have walked away from God. They're trying to find purpose in themselves. They're trying to find purpose in idols, trying to find purpose in other things. But we were created by God and for God. The purpose of life, true life, is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rebellion against God is both futile and fatal. The clay can only find life in the hands of the potter. And if clay, if the clay yields, fails to yield to the wishes of the potter's hands, it will be crushed and cast aside. This holy hush in heaven reminds us of God's justice, but it also reminds us of God's grace. Life is found in him. There's a second thing I want you to see here, and that is God hears and acts on the prayers of his people. Verses 3 through 5, we see the angel taking the censer and offering with the prayers of all the saints this incense to the Lord. This angel's offering is coupled with the prayers. It's given over to the Lord as an offering of worship. And these prayers rise up before the Lord. And immediately what we see happening is the angel who offered the incense with the prayers takes the censer and he takes the coals from the fire and he hurls it in response to the prayers of the people back down upon the earth. This scene reminds us as well as it assures us that God not only hears our prayers when we pray, but he acts on them. We often say that God's activity runs on the prayers of his people. I'm reminded of 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear, I will forgive, and I will heal their land. Today, you and I, we can pray with certainty, knowing that God both hears and acts on our behalf. It's a good word to know today and the season that we're living in. There's a third thing I want you to see here this morning. The first four trumpets graciously warn unrepentant sinners of the full wrath of God to come. See, God's wrath here has been swift. As we've read it from verses 6 through 13, this wrath has been swift, it has been severe, but it has not been complete. He has withheld its fullness. And the eagle's three woes warn of an impending and complete judgment to come. Up to this point, only a third has been affected. Only a third has been affected. It's been held back. It's been restrained to some extent. However, there's an opportunity 
even in this judgment before the full brunt of it comes, for men and women to repent of sin, to place faith in Jesus. This is a grace that God is bestowing. This is an opportunity that rebellious man should receive and should apply. So how do we apply this to our lives today? The certainty of the wrath of God against sin should lead to repentance and faith today. It should lead every, every one of us to turn from our sin, to turn from ourselves, and to turn to God, forsaking sin and trusting Jesus by faith. Today, as we witness the judgments of God against sin and hear the warnings and the woes, we should take notice. We should take heed of them. These should not just be words on a page, but these should be things that speak into our life and draw us closer to the Lord Jesus, draw us, as I said, away from sin and toward him. As believers, we should be encouraged that God does and will act in judgment against sin and the sinner. We should be drawing near to God in worship and adoration. We should flee from any and all sin in our lives, and we should run to others with the gospel, knowing that judgment is on the horizon, and we have the hope for them. Someone who is living in rebellion against God, there's a message for you too. Those who are, as we might say, far from God, are really only a prayer away, only a turn away. There's good news for you. The Bible tells us, we share this every Sunday, the Bible tells us that the God, that the good news of the Bible is that God created you, he loves you, he has a perfect design for your life, he has purpose for your life, he wants to know you. This is good news, you are not rejected. God loves you, God is drawing you to himself. But in that good news, there's also bad news. The bad news is that your perfect design that you were created to enjoy has been broken and marred by sin. Every one of us are born into this life a sinner, therefore we sin. And the Bible tells us that that sin separates us from God and brings us under the just judgment of a holy God. Brokenness is all throughout our lives. It's pervasive in everything that we do and in every way that we think. But there's hope. That's the great news. The great news is the gospel. The great news is that God obviously loves you, but sin has broken you. But that great news is that God came to remake you. God came in the form of a man. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to bridge the gap between sinful humanity and holy God. He is the one who brings us together. Today, the gospel declares that God the Son, Jesus Christ, has paid this penalty for our sin. He has done everything necessary to satisfy the wrath of God against your sin and against my sin so that we can be forgiven and redeemed, that we can enjoy the relationship with God that he desires and the relationship he created us to enjoy. Jesus did that for us. And so today, today needs to be the beginning of the end for your sin in your life. It needs to be the day that you say yes to Jesus and no to sin. Yes to Jesus and no to yourself. Yes to Jesus and no to anything that would stand in the way between you and God. Today needs to be the beginning of the end of those things. And it can be if you will turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. It's a simple thing. All you have to do, 
The Bible tells us if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sins. If we will call out on the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. It's as simple as saying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm rebelling against you. I deserve everything that you would bring against my sin, but I trust you as Lord and Savior today. I confess my sin to you. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me and change my life. It's as simple as a prayer like that. I want to encourage you this morning. If you're far from God today, put your faith and trust in Jesus and pray and seek his face. Turn from your sins and follow him. In just a moment, you're going to see a slide on the screen. And like the slide earlier, we want to hear from you. If God is speaking into your life, and he's saying to you today, you need to be a follower of Jesus. You need to turn from your sins. The judgments that's being proclaimed in this word are things that are going to come against your life if you do not place your faith and trust in Jesus. If you understand that this morning, you want to come to Christ, I want to encourage you, pray a prayer like I prayed earlier. Seek God's face, but let us know about it so we can pray with you and help you and encourage you. I want to ask you to, to go to right there in your Facebook feed and, and send us a direct message perhaps or get on our Contact Us page on our website and send us a message or you want to take that phone number and just simply text, believe, and we'll follow up with you even this afternoon and talk with you about the gospel and how you can place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, how you can get connected here at Red Lane Baptist Church. Perhaps you need prayer. You can use those same three formats. We will pray for you. We want to pray with you and to pray for you. God loves you. We as a church family, we love you. We're excited about the gospel and what it will and can do in your life. Let this be the beginning of the end as we walk away from sin and we walk toward the Lord Jesus Christ. God is good. Amen? Well, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you today for your grace and for your goodness. We thank you today that there's, there's going to be a day in the near future where judgment will come against all sin, and sin will be done away with. The enemy will be done away with. This sinful world will be done away with. But, Lord, even as we rejoice in that, that, that everything that's been done against your people will be um, brought to justice, our heart also aches for those who are not yet in Christ. And so we pray, God, even for those who are listening this morning, that they would hear the gospel and receive it into the life, that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus. God, help us in this time of, of crisis where people are fearful and, and concerned about what's coming next. God, give us opportunities to speak hope and to speak life as we point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you're awesome. We thank you that you're holy and just. And we give you our worship and our praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Our prayers are with you and for you, and I pray you have a fabulous week in Jesus' name.